Again, our podcast today, Super Bowl number 58, is in the books. Now, that being true, as I prepare my notes for today, I have no idea who will win and who will lose. Will the ring go to the favored San Francisco Niners or to the underdogs? Second year in a row, the defending Super Bowl champions, the Kansas City Chiefs. Well, I don't know the answer to that question. Here's what I do know. The event will capture the attention of millions of people from all over the world. So in honor of that, I thought it would be good to play a little bit of a Super Bowl trivia game. See, see how many of these you can answer. Number one, at Super Bowl number 35, the Buffalo Bills squared off against Baltimore. What was the name of the starting quarterback for Baltimore? Do you remember? You might be surprised. His name was Trent Dilfer. I had forgotten that completely. Okay, let's talk commercials. The cost for a 30-second commercial for Super Bowl 58 is astounding $7 million. I don't think we'll see any churches advertising. What was the cost for that same 30 seconds in Super Bowl number one? Ready for this? In 1967, the cost for a 30-second commercial was $42,500. Things have changed. Okay, what about ticket cost? The cost for a ticket to Super Bowl 58 is in the 10,000 range. Give me two on the 50-yard line, which would probably more be like $50,000. But that said, what was the cost of a ticket for Super Bowl number one? Are you ready for this? Super Bowl number one to get a seat was $10. That's it. Did you go to a Super Bowl party this year? If you did, what did you eat? Or can you name the number one food item consumed during the Super Bowl? This year, it will be chicken wings. 1.25 billion wings will be donated by chickens um, for the Super Bowl. Oh, and if wings, there must be beer. Do you have any idea how many gallons of beer are consumed during the Super Bowl? Ready for this? 325.5 million gallons of beer will go down the hatch. One more step. This one's not entirely new, but it is something that is growing exponentially in America, and that is betting. Some people will bet point spreads, others will bet under, over, some the money line. Here's my question. Can you guess how many Americans will place a bet on the Super Bowl? Ready for this? 67.8 million will bet $23.1 billion. That's a lot of money. Given the fact that there's no such thing as a sure bet, when it comes to the Super Bowl. But what about God? In our session today, I want to return to the words, Peter is speaking to Christians living in the second half of the first century AD. We're in Rome, the date is 64. And as much as betting is taking place today, did you know that it took place then as well? Romans loved their sport. In fact, when archaeologists excavate ancient cities, what they discover at the heart of every great city is a circus or a hippodrome, some some venue for sports and entertainment. And this was particularly true in Rome. If you've never been there, I'm going to guess that at minimum you have seen pictures of the great Colosseum. I'll tell you, some years ago I was able to, to see it for the first time up close and personal, and I was astonished at its size, its technology, and its capabilities. At its height, the Coliseum was a covered arena, much like the great football stadiums of America and around the globe. 
Just as our modern stadiums can be converted for multiple uses, did you know this? Rome's Center for Sports, the Coliseum, could as well. One day it was set up to host Olympic events. The next, reconfigured to host gladiator games. The Colossal Stadium, I didn't know this, but true story, could even be flooded and used to host games involving sailing vessels indoors. I'm telling you, it is to this day a marvel to behold. Now, while the Colosseum was not established until 70 AD under Vespasian, remember with me that what was in vogue at the time of Nero was the great Circus Maximus, not as grand as its replacement would be. The circus brought crowds from all over the Roman world, and yes, it supported the practice of betting. While early emperors, including Augustus, established laws forbidding betting, by the time we get to Nero, the law of the land was that of Lex Altoria. Lex Altoria. If you remember your Latin, alia are dice. And so the law was literally referred to as the law of the dice, or we would say the law of luck. When making bets, the Romans practiced venatio, which included bets involving battles between animals or animals and humans. They practiced ludi meridian, which involved bets where executions were concerned. In most cases, the better would place their bet, appealing to the Roman Greco goddess Fortuna, the goddess of fortune, to bring them luck. This was the case where the execution of Christians was concerned. And so it's into this setting that Peter's words in the first chapter of 1 Peter to the church enter. What Peter wants Christians to recognize is the simple truth that when it comes to God, all human bets are off. Why? Because the things of God are not a matter of chance, fortune, or luck. They're irrefutably certain. Today, I want to return with you to words of Peter that are meant to say one thing. Be certain of who you are and whose you are in Christ Jesus. As we turn back to 1 Peter today, let me remind you of where we left off last week. Peter is writing to the church during a period of history where they are being persecuted. We have said in our English, using the colloquial, that there are times insult is added to injury. And I can hardly imagine this time under Nero, what it meant to live under the persecution that the Christians endured. What's hard to imagine is what it would feel like to know that your life in the eyes of your persecutor was nothing more than a sport, a bet, a gamble. That's insult to injury. Romans would gamble on time. How long would a victim survive? Posture. Would the victim fight back or would they simply allow their death passively? They would bet on predators. Which animals would be used to carry out various persecutions. For the betor, all humanity was gone. The faces in the arena were little more than a number to them. A hope for diversion. Instead of seeing people or souls, those who occupied the stands of the Circus Maximus saw products, pawns in a system. Individual Christians were simply a bet, and not a sure one at that which is what makes Peter's words to Jesus' followers so significantly. 
Last week we looked at verses 3 to 5 in 1 Peter 1, in which Peter seeks to bring three words into the minds and hearts of his hearers. The words that we looked at last week were the words imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. I'm going to say them one more time. Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And immediately you can hear what each of these holds in common. They are words of certainty. In other words, in this uncertain time, during which one awoke each day to the uncertainty of death, will today be the day the Romans take me prisoner? Will today be the day that I face lions in the circus? In this time of uncertainty, Peter would say there's one thing, Christian, that you can be certain of. You can be certain of your eternity. I believe that this fact produced within Christians an even if quality to life. Christians could say, even if you persecute me, even if you should take all that I own, even if you should take my life, there's one thing that you can never take from me, and that is the promise of eternity lived with Jesus. I want you to listen to these words one more time. I'm reading from 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. Uh, our reading from last week. And again, Lord, we, we pray that you give us your direction and insight. Let's just read. It says, quote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is, here are our words, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So you probably heard it. He, Jesus, has caused us to be born again to an inheritance that persecution cannot take away. Now today I want to move on to, to the, the closing verses of that section where Peter strengthens his thought by reminding Christians again of who they are and to whom they belong, who they are and to whom they belong. Let me tell you how I think about this. I think most of us are familiar with TED Talks. Have you ever listened to a TED Talk? I've forgotten this, but TED Talks have been around for quite a while. Uh, began in 1984 by Richard Werman and Harry Marks. The talks initially were designed to serve as one-off conferences that would address the confluence emerging within fields of technology, T, Entertainment, E, and Design, D. The first TED Talk featured three ideas. The compact disc, the ebook, and 3D graphics. And it was kind of a flop. The TED Talk didn't go over well. The world just wasn't ready for TED in 1984. By 1990, it was. Over the years, TED has done quite well. It's estimated that TED Talks are viewed as much as three billion times a year. That's a lot of, of views. So let me ask you this. Given the popularity of TED Talks, what talks are the most viewed of all time? I don't know if you know this, but number one is a talk given by Sir Ken Robinson. Its title is, Do Schools Kill Creativity? Spoiler alert, they do. Number two, Amy Cuddy. She, she speaks on the topic of body language. Her talk is titled, Your Body Language May Determine Who You Are. Interesting. 
then let me skip us over to number five, the one that I want to think about today. It's a TED Talk titled, How Great Leaders Inspire Action. It's given by Simon Sinek, and it's based on his popular book, Why. If you've never read the book or listened to this talk, I, I recommend that you do. In, in it, Simon Sinek looks into the question of what makes companies and movements successful. Now, I'm oversimplifying, but here's where Sinek lands. It is his suggestion that great leaders, no matter the organization, always begin with one question. The question is why? Why are we doing this? It's his contention that if you cannot answer this question in a way that reaches into a person's heart, that inspires you, you'll not be successful. Now hang on to that thought and let me use a different word here. The word that I want to use is the word who. When you read First Peter, what he begins with is who. In the midst of a period of history marked with persecution, Peter wants to say to his listeners, remember who you are and whose you are. You are a called out body of people called to change the world, not, not through your inspiration, but through a word that is inspired, that which belongs to God. Not only this, but remember whose you are. You belong to a God who's intent on walking with you through even the most difficult of circumstances. This is what I want you to hear as we listen to verses 5 to 7. I'll back up again to verse 3 so we're able to hear the whole in this content. Again, Lord, guide our hearing of this word. Okay, First Peter 1, 3 to 7. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Now hear these next words. Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Well, what's Peter doing here? He's answering the, the why question. Why? Can we as Christians be so certain of our eternity, even when we're under persecution? Why? Because of who we are. We belong to God, who is with us, even in the midst of our persecution. Allow me to highlight a couple of words here and lift this theme up. I'm going to start with the words translated, kept in heaven for you. What Peter is referring to here is the promise of an eternity, lived out with Jesus for those who trust him for salvation. Your eternity, Peter is saying, is being kept for you in heaven. Now, what I love in this verse is the imagery of the word. In our English translation, we say, your eternity is being kept in heaven for you. Hearing this, we might conclude that the image is much like a Christmas gift put on layaway. We have it, but we don't yet. Someday we will. I would suggest that this is not what Peter wants to convey. In fact, I believe that what he wants to suggest to us has more depth to it. It's true that you have eternity now. We are right now eternal beings. But here I believe Peter is pointing to the work of the way that God holds on to our eternity. We see this best through the imagery of the Greek word that's used here when we say that our eternity is being kept for us. In the Greek language, the language of the New Testament, the word that Peter uses to refer to God's keeping our eternity is the word tet 
Tetramina. I know that doesn't mean a lot to you, but listen to this. Tetramina is a word that has its roots in the verb tereo, which etymologically means to watch over or to place one's eyes upon. I love the implication. What Peter is pointing to is the fact that even before time began, before the world was created or you came into being, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, set their eyes upon you, upon your soul. From even prior to your conception, God, who is overall, has watched over you and is watching over you right now. And is watching over you is not distant or impersonal, as though he simply sits off in the distant passively, observing things going on in your life. No, it is active and highly intimate. It is a watching with the intent of keeping your soul under his care. Now, I, I don't know about you, but were I living in the time of Peter, with persecution going on around me, and perhaps even within my own household or circle of relationships, this word would bring certainty into an uncertain situation. Is God passively watching what's going on in my life without care? No. He cares intimately to the degree that he, even more than I, knows exactly what I need to make it through this day. Peter is saying he is keeping your eternity. Now, move forward into verse 5, where he adds another word. The word is guarded. Again, quote, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through for faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, end quote. Again, I find the imagery helpful. In this verse, the Greek word for guarded is purain. One more time, I don't expect you to know the word, but celebrate this with me. The word has military connotations. This is a word that recognizes that at all times, we have not just physical enemies, but spiritual ones. Martin Luther used to say it this way. The old monk would say there are three great enemies of our soul. They are the devil, the world, and our own flesh at any given time. These enemies are at work seeking to separate our soul from the one who loves us most, our Jesus. Set against these enemies, however, is the whole of heaven. Guarding our souls, our God along with the whole of the Sabbath army in heaven, the army of angels. Wow, that inspires confidence. Christians living in 64 were able to see their physical persecutors. Nero, however, acted as an agent of an unseen persecutor, namely Satan. In his horrific acts of brutal persecution, we are able to see the fury of Satan described in Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, where John tells us that Satan, unable to defeat Jesus, makes war every day with the offspring, namely you and I, his followers. What Peter is saying is this, the enemy cannot win. Satan has already met his defeat. When the whole of heaven fights for you, there is no bet. Victory is already yours. Romans, go ahead and make your way to Circus Maximus. Take your seats in the mighty Colosseum. Place your bets, but do not bet against God, because I will tell you this, you have already lost. Followers of Jesus, find confidence in this. And, and so we do. We do not go into the week the way Kansas City or San Francisco went into the Super Bowl with bets on the line. We enter each day, each week, certain that the armies of heaven go with us. 
For me, this raises a couple of questions that I want to leave you with today. First, as you enter the week ahead, who or what is threatening your competence? To say it simply, what's shaking you up? What's getting in your head? As a pastor, I, I get to listen to a lot of what's happening in people's lives. I know that every one of us faces in any given week obstacles, difficulties that have the power to really shake the very foundations of our lives. But I also know that some of you listening to this podcast are facing some really tough ones. Some are related to your physical health, some your employment, some your relationships. Some are fighting depression or a sense of meaninglessness. You may not be facing the forces of imperial Rome, but each of us at any given time does face an enemy of a deeper nature. What is shaking your confidence today? Which leads me to question number two. Has the enemy managed to convince you, because he will try, that God is passive or doesn't care? I wish that we could all say, well, well Pastor Luke, I'm impervious to the devil's deception, but, but we're not. I have to say that our enemy is good at seeking to convince us that we are alone, that God is impotent, or that he just doesn't care. Worse yet, that you deserve what's happening in your life right now. And we begin to believe it. Is that happening in your life right now? Number three, would you allow these words to come into you? I believe that God wants you to know that far from being impotent or distant or passive, Whatever you are going through in your life right now, he is with you, watching over your soul, guarding the inheritance of your eternity. Well, that's it for today. Um, of course, lifting you and your family up in prayer, I ask that you would lift myself and my family up as well. Until next week, then, have a God-sized week.